Okay, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. The uh, sermon title in the bulletin is incorrect. Um, and that's because the title of my sermon is Paul's Secret from Philippians 4. I want to begin uh, by addressing a topic that is brought up to me quite frequently. Uh, Quite frankly, not by younger people, but typically by older people, people my age and above. Uh, there tends to be in our culture, and it, particularly in America, a, a tendency to obsess over world troubles, okay, to fixate on that. And I think there's a reason that that happens. Uh, I think... The troubles that we face in our generation are often over-sensationalized. You are hit with a barrage of 24-7 news coverage that can cause the most peaceful person in the world to experience deep consternation and trouble in their heart. So I don't think that the people that over-sensationalize it, particularly Christian preachers that over-sensationalize the troubles of our age, are intentionally seeking to uh, you know, kind of deceive and, and kind of twist things and make things sound a whole lot worse than they are. But I do believe this. I believe that the sensationalizing of current events, saying things have never been this bad, I believe it is profoundly historically ignorant to say that. I just finished reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's biography by Eric Metaxas. I would, if you like history and biblical theology, I could not recommend to you more this book. It's 500 pages. It's not a light read. But if you want to find out what life has really been like historically, read that book. You will not come away saying things have never been as bad as they are today. Okay? Jesus said this about the church age. Matthew 24 and 25, John 16. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. But do not fear. I have overcome the world. So when I encounter Christians, people my parents' age, saying to my parents, saying to my in-laws all the time, some of that stuff you need to stop listening to. You need to fall in love with Jesus. You need to press into Christ who has given us the promise of victory so that we as Christians don't live in a perpetual state of panic because we don't know the secret that Paul knew that transformed his life so that in prison he could write to his church family in Philippi and say, I am fine. I am fine. So this morning, I want to unfold Paul's secret as a means of doing something that people encourage me to do all the time. Okay, and what I find that people tend to encourage me to do is, why don't you talk about politically what's happening? Why don't you talk about things that are happening in the world? Okay, this morning, I will. Okay, I'll address the things that are happening in the world, but I will do it from a biblical perspective. I want you to look through a lens. I want you to look through a telescope this morning that will get your eye fixed on the right thing. And the right thing is not enumerating and listing over and over and over all of the troubles that are present in the world. That's not new news. Jesus said to the church, you'll face that the entire time of the church age. There will be earthquakes, there will be wars, there will be rumors of wars. Read Matthew 24 and 25. What does he say? That is not the end. Okay, that is... That is what's characteristic of the age in which we live, where we wait for and rest in Jesus Christ as our hope. Paul knew a secret. 
Paul knew a secret that can drive away the depression that affects many Christians. We live in an age when depression, seriously, is right at your fingertips. If you have a smartphone and you're having a good day and you want to ruin it, just bring up news on your, on your, uh, on your cell phone. Read what's happening in the world you live in. Read what's happening in the world that other people have lived in. Okay? It, it, it's not new. It's just that the news is constantly there. The, the placards hang before you on a daily basis uh, that you look at through the Internet or through TV. However you get your news, it, it's just constantly there. And so today I want to address that through a passage of Scripture that I hope you will memorize. Philippians 4 and verse 13 says this, and most of you, probably, if you know this, just pick up with me, okay? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, okay? So it sounds like, like 90% of you know that verse. Okay, here's what I want to do for you today. I want to put that verse in its context, okay? So that what you know will come alive in the world you live in today. So that you will realize that that verse is not a baseball bat that you can beat people with to get them to try things they would never otherwise try. Okay? Which is usually how that verse is quoted, isn't it? You're facing something that's outside the realm of your gifting and capacities. And what do people say? Hey, Jesus promised you can do everything through him that strengthens you. Everything. Now, look, I, I, I didn't call Michael Phelps a couple weeks ago and say, you know what? I'd like to go head to head with you in the pool because I can do all things. Okay, I don't think any of the girls in our, in our church family called Gabby and said, hey, I see you at the mat because I can do all things. But that's typically how this verse is understood. It's typically understood as a reason to try anything for God. Now, I'm going to qualify it a little bit, okay, and come back to the fact that I think it is an enormous promise that is seldom enjoyed by believers today. Please, we allow the news of the day, we allow the, the mood of the day and the age to steal our joy. I think this is a verse that if you grab it, you're going to say, that's the secret. And I'm going to say to you, that's it. And Paul would say to you, that's the secret of contentment. That's how you can be at peace with God in the midst of the most amazing circumstances that you can face. One of my favorite photographs Maybe you've seen this. I've tried to find it because I want to send it to a lady that I met in Indonesia who heads up some of the church planning work there. It's a picture of a man in a hurricane <clears throat> standing at the base of a lighthouse. And they capture a 30 to 40 foot wave crashing around this lighthouse. You know where he's standing? He's standing right outside the door of the lighthouse as this wave engulfs this lighthouse. And what is he doing? He's not panicking. He is completely at peace. Why? He's standing on the right side of the lighthouse. And what is he experiencing? A peace that is coming from what? From the fact that a fortress stands between him and the trouble that he's facing. You can't stand in the wave of a hurricane. But he did. And the question is why? And the answer is this. What stood between him and the wave was stronger than the wave. The waves of life come. They batter us. Out. I am not saying that we live in an easy, easy age or an easy generation where there are no... I'm not being a denier. I don't have my eyes shut. I'm just saying that we need to regain a proper perspective that sees that God is there. That the God of Abraham will be your rear guard. That he will be a shield about you so that you can say in the midst of the storms of life, which we all face, I'm fine. 
So let's delve our way into this text. I want to begin reading in verse 10, Philippians chapter 4. By the way, I'm reading my glasses because I can't do all things. Okay? Maybe I have to think about that for a minute. Here's what Paul says. In prison, for the name of Christ, for obedience to Christ. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord, that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Amazing, isn't it? I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. That's a verse teenagers should memorize right there. You probably need to. Whether living in plenty or want. Paul, what's the secret? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay, that's the, that's the promise that this text holds out to you this morning. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to be able to walk out of here this morning with the capacity and the ability to say, I am fine. I am fine. It's a cliche, isn't it? Dave Allegro and I kind of go back and forth on this. I say, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing fine. He said, really? Really? What do we tend to do? We tend to say, I'm fine, meaning what? Meaning what? Is it resignation? Life's never going to get better. My marriage will never be fixed. My kids will never straighten out. God will never come through. This person will never come to Christ. Is it resignation? You know what? I've resolved that everything is just going to be the way it is. So I am, therefore, I'm fine. Is that what Paul's saying? Is it stoic resignation that just sits back and says, life is hard. But I'm still breathing. Is it that? Is he gasping at life? Is he, is he grasping at just a little bit of life that he has? I want to make four observations from this text that I think will help us to uncover the secret that the Apostle Paul knew. First one is this. Contentment. The ability to say, I am fine. And, 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 and this word, when Paul says, I have learned the secret of contentment, okay, that word literally means something like this. It means to be self-sufficient, to be satisfied, and to have enough. Okay? But I'm going to come back and redefine the self-sufficiency. Okay? Because the word Paul uses is, I am self-sufficient, but then he's going to tie that sufficiency to an object. Okay? So he's going to say, I'm fine. It's as if I am self-sufficient, but he's going to tie that sufficiency to another source. Okay? Because the kind of self-sufficiency that many people have produces pride. The kind of sufficiency that Paul's talking about will produce deep, joyful humility. Okay, so what, watch as we go along. The first thing he's going to teach us is this. Contentment is not circumstantial. Okay, Paul writes this letter. You go back to chapter 1, from prison. Okay, so he's not, he's not saying, you know what, my dwelling place, is, it's, it's fine. It's fine. It's not fine. He's in prison. He's tied to a Roman soldier. So he's not talking about the, the circumstances of his life. And I think in verses 11 and 12, he makes this very clear. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to, ha to have plenty. I have learned the secret of contentment in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or want. Okay, that's Paul's life. 
Paul is a lot like who? He's a lot like us. He's experienced highs in his life and lows in his life. Great circumstances and difficult circumstances. He knows what it is to go through the pressure. I printed out Romans chapter 12, verses 8 through 10, so that you can understand Paul's circumstances in which he can say, I'm fine. Listen to what this says. Okay, Okay. here we go. 2 Corinthians 11, if you want to flip back a few pages. I want listen to this. This is Paul's circumstances in which he says, I'm fine. Here's what he says. I have worked much harder and been in prison more frequently. I have been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. I mean, I get nervous about my knee hurting. Okay? Paul says, I've been exposed to death. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the ocean. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger. Moms, does that sound familiar? Those that have little ones. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not assume that weakness? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? What is Paul saying? If you want to talk about pressure, if you want to talk about tight spots, if you want to talk about between, living between a rock and a hard place and saying, I am okay. Paul knew contentment where in that life. So when he says it in Philippians chapter four and gives you the condensed version, I've had a lot and I've had a little. I've been hungry and fed. Okay, he's reflecting back on what he says in Second Corinthians. He says, I have been through the most horrific, unbelievable circumstances. And I can honestly say, I'm fine. That's Paul's phenomenal testimony. So the first thought is this. The, the, the contentment that he experiences, the, the fineness, the self-sufficiency that he knows, the okayness, is not derived from, you know, the sun will come out tomorrow, and therefore I'm fine. No, what Paul's saying is this. If the future of my life is anything like the past, this is going to be hellacious. This is going to be profoundly difficult, but I am fine. Would to God that that was our testimony. Not panicked because we're worried about the next presidential election or the rise of Islam in the world or whatever. Paul doesn't even talk about stuff like that. He doesn't talk about Nero who's going to take his life. He's not panicked by politics. Why? Because he knows the God who is uh, Psalm 40 verse 11, above politics, above everything. Therefore, be still my soul. If your contentment is circumstantial, please understand this. It is sure to be brief. Because life is hard. The circumstances that life will throw at you are difficult. They are not for the faint of heart. If you're going to keep your chin up and keep a, a, a sense of joy on your in your face that's not tied to something wrenching, as he just said in the video, but that's tied to peace within, you're going to have to learn to reckon with the fact that contentment from God, sufficiency, 
is not tied to your circumstances. They change. The sun doesn't always come up tomorrow. For Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he spent years trying to take out Hitler. He was a central factor in the Valkyrie plot. When that plot failed and all the conspirators were discovered, they were put in prison, tortured, beaten, so they would give up the names of others. They did not face that, saying, you know what? Tomorrow will be better. Oh, yeah, who's beating you tomorrow? No. They had a contentment that was not derived from circumstances. You want to get challenged in this area? Read the life of Corey Tenbaum. Go read about her circumstances. Who talked about circumstances being derived and written out by a sovereign God. The, the confession of her heart was, if you don't trust in the sovereign God, your circumstances will tear your life apart. Folks, you are not alone in your struggle. The trouble that you face, that you need the help of God in, you're not alone. Everybody faces circumstances like that. Sir, so contentment is not circumstantial. Secondly, and simply, it is not material. That is to say, contentment does not derive from abundance. I'm glad we're doing this seminar because you know what most people in America think and what many of us teach our kids, unfortunately? If you get a bigger paycheck, you will be happier. That is a lie. That is a lie. It's not to say that a bigger paycheck is in and of itself sinful. But if you try to find your happiness in what's written on your paycheck, you will violate the tenets of this scripture that says that contentment in life, the kind that Paul's talking about, not the kind that the average person in the world that wins the lottery feels momentarily, not that. He's talking about something that is so much deeper that you run to the store with the lottery ticket that you think is the winning ticket, and you get there and find out that you misread one of the numbers. And you can still say, you know what? I'm fine. Or you can lose your job that has the good size paycheck attached to it and say, you know what? I'm fine. You can sit down with your kids and say, my God will supply all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ. Therefore, we're fine. Now, that's not to say that the seasons of want aren't hard. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's possible, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in prison to write letters that inspire millions in the world today. It's possible in those circumstances, facing virtually certain death, which he ultimately died two weeks before the death of Hitler. Hitler called for the slaughter of all the men that were involved in the conspiracy as he saw the noose of America and Britain tightening around his neck. And you and I look at what do we say? We say, what a waste. What a waste. How could God? When we really should be saying is, God, why did you do that? What do you want me to learn from the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? What do you want me to learn from the suffering of my brothers and sisters in Christ? What do you want me to learn from my suffering? And I think one of the things God wants you to know is contentment, happiness, joy, a resoluteness in your life is not tied to circumstances. And it's not tied to material possessions. We live in an age that bombards us, right, with the things we need. It bombards us with dissatisfaction with the things we have. So if you don't have a car and you see people with one, you want one. You get a car and then the advertisement starts showing you nicer cars. 
and nicer trucks. And what do you say? I don't like the truck I have anymore. I want that truck to be happy. Okay? I, I was in Ocean City this week visiting my in-laws for a couple of days. There's a bakery down there called Milan's. They make sticky buns. And I noticed yesterday when I was driving out of town that the fan over the oven is pointed towards the street. Okay, and seriously, you drive down the street and you smell fresh baked sticky buns. Okay, and what's the purpose of that? Why don't they aim it up? Okay, yeah, to me, cause me to say, you know what, honey, I could use some health food. Okay, what well, it, it creates? What a sense of oh, I wish I had that. And you know what Satan does? He blows the odor of pleasure over our lives, doesn't he? He blows the odor of sexual. Uh, satisfaction and the odor of material satisfaction he blows it over our life and we smell we're saying man i gotta get some of that why because we think that true you know the thing that i'm looking for to satisfy me will be there and then if i get those things i'll be content can i give you a simple honest answer you won't be you won't be the book of proverbs is 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 bound up with great wisdom Proverbs 17, verse 1, it says, a dry crust eaten in peace. And here's the way I read that in Paul's eyes, right? A dry crust eaten in prison. That's Paul's life, isn't it? A dry crust eaten in prison is better than a feast with strife. Oh, yeah, no, but if I had a little more, yeah, but if you have a little more with you and your mate or you and the people that you have consternation with, you won't be happy with the stuff. It won't satisfy. It'd be better to have a little and have God than to have a lot and be without God. That's what Paul's saying. It's not tied to things. Another verse in Proverbs that was quoted to us at our wedding by a man who was sharing, a man that I did a church plant with in North Carolina before I came home from college. He read this verse to my wife and I. He said, better is a little where love is than a stalled ox and hatred with it. You understand that the king james says this better is a dinner of herbs and i'm thinking to myself you got to be kidding me <laughs> okay then filet mignon on hoof and i'm like okay i need to really meditate on that but i think this paul got it paul got it he enjoyed this little gift from the church of philippi and he writes back a letter to them saying thank you Thank you. I am, I, am, I am blossoming with joy. Thank you. But I want you to know, I didn't have to have it to be happy. Because Christ has become so precious to me. Do you see? It's not bound up in circumstances. It's not bound up in a little bit more. It doesn't depend on the size of your bank account, your house, or your car or the latest technology, or the best clothes, or athletic ability, or good looks. It does not depend on those things. It depends on God. And I note in this next statement something that jumps out to me regularly in Scripture, and it is common in Paul's understanding of the body of Christ. Contentment is a relational experience. Okay, I want you to note what the text says. Look at verse 10. Paul says, I rejoice greatly, where? In the Lord, okay? So the sphere of Paul's happiness is where? It's in the Lord. But what is this portion of the book of Philippians? What is chapter 4, 10 and following? It's a thank you note. 
Okay, it's shorter than the ones that my wife writes, but it's a thank you note. Okay, what is Paul saying? I've received abundance. I'm writing to you saying thank you, but I want you to know that my joy is not in your gift. Thank you. But I want you to know my joy is in the Lord. Okay, it's just, it's, it is such a, a profound and beautiful picture of the way he says it. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that now at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content. You see how he goes? So he got the gift. He writes a thank you note. But in the thank you note, what does he say? I rejoice in the Lord. And by the way, thank you for the gift. It was tasty. Okay, it's, it's got that kind of, a, kind of a feel to it. The words here are very beautiful. In, in verses 10 and 11, he says, I rejoice greatly that you have revived your concern, your concern for me. Okay, meaning there, there's been an awakening in their hearts. Not that they forgot Paul, but there's been an awakening. The word literally means to blossom. One commentator said it this way. He said, this verb, revived your concern, is filled with poetic boldness, chosen to convey an active, thoughtful affection. Okay, for, so for someone in prison who could think that they have been forgotten, what is Paul able to say? You have been concerned for me, and now your concern has been revived, and as your concern was revived, what happened? You sent me a gift. Thank you. You encouraged my heart. You're cultivating, you're, you're causing contentment to rise within me. It was for Paul part of his vital relationships in life. In verse 14, notice what he says. He says, it was good for you to share with me in my troubles. It was morally and ethically appropriate for you to see my need and to respond to that need. What is Paul saying? Part of the contentment that he's experiencing in God is found in his God-centered relationships. It wasn't the gift that fired Paul up. It got him all jazzed. Can't wait to open this. You know what got him? The sender. And you get a thank you note from someone. Someone sends you an email and says, hey, by the way, thank you for what you did. Okay. Why is that encouraging? Does it taste good? You print it out and say, good stuff. All right? No, you know, you don't do that. What do you do? You, you read it and you think about the person that sent it. And as you do, contentment rises in your soul. Why? I have not been forgotten. That's what Paul's saying. Here's a man who has literally been through hell. Physically. And what does he say? Thank you for saying hi. And thank you for meeting some of the needs that I have. That, that to me is just an unbelievably beautiful picture. I don't know if you've ever had, had this happen to you. Um, it, it happens to me somewhat regularly. If I visit someone and they say, hey, would you like a little bit of X, Y, or Z? What do I typically say? What do you typically say to someone? What do you say? Oh, okay, I'm fine. Right? Because why? I don't want to inconvenience them. So what do I say? I'm looking at it and saying, man, it would be so good. But no, fine. Okay? I, I, I do it all the time. And then you're hoping they come back with a boomerang question, right? You're hoping that they, they, they understand your psyche, that your first thing you want to do is impress them with how polite you are and your restraint. Okay? And the second thing you do is dive on it, right? And they say, oh, okay, if you're going to force it on me, okay, I'll take some. Right? And what is it? The first response is, no, I'm fine. I'm not really fine. I would really like to have that. I'd be, I don't have, what am I saying? I'm not starving and I'm not dying of thirst. Because don't trouble yourself to go into the kitchen and get me a glass of water. But when they do, what does it say? They ignored my 
lie and hypocrisy, and they came and they met the need. And what do you, it's the thought of what they did that encourages your heart. And if they're a good baker, what they made is also somewhat encouraging. Notice verse 18. Look, look at what Paul says. Okay, verse 18. I have received full payment and even more. What does he mean by that? The church in Philippi has sent a letter, has sent along with it and Epaphroditus some groceries. And what does Paul say? I received what you sent, every bit of it and more. Thinking to yourself, Paul, what do you mean? You know what he's saying? It wasn't the gift. It was the thought that counted. That I was on your mind. That you revived your active thought about my well-being is so encouraging. Because you know what this is like. Jason walks up to his dear wife, Sue, and says, Honey, I love what you're doing for our kids. And Sue says, About time you noticed it, Jason. <laughs> well, she says, Thank you. And you feel encouraged, right, Sue? It, it, really, are you going to write epistles? You don't have to write epistles. You have to show people you care. And when you do, what happens? Paul says, I was revived. I got the gift you gave me, but the thought, you thought of me. But folks, listen, if someone who went through hell in terms of physical suffering could write and say, thanks for the thought, then, then do you realize the responsibility we have to cultivate contentment in one another's hearts? to rebuild and to vitalize our joy in God. And Paul says all of this is happening in the context of vital relationships in the body of Christ. I received a phone call last week. When it happened, it, it just kind of happened, and I hung up and I thought, okay. And then a couple days ago I thought, wow, that's amazing. A man who lost his son a month ago called me on the phone. I was a friend with his son. And he said to me, how are you? I said, what do you mean, how am I? How are you? He said, no, I want to know how you are. Lost his 29-year-old son. Sitting at his shop thinking about me. At first it hit me. Then I'm reading this text and I'm like, Wow. Folks, that's what we do. When the thought comes to mind and we act on the thought, God blesses in ways that it has an echo effect. I've thought about that a couple times, and I'm like, wow. I have never known suffering like that man knows right now. He thought of me. And look, that's what Paul's saying, isn't he? You were lifting me up to God. You sent physical sustenance to meet my needs. Thank you. Thank you. And may God set in our hearts such a love and such an encouragement. We are the means that God uses. We are the instruments. And I want to say this to you this morning. Do not underestimate the power of a note, a phone call, a word of encouragement to your kids, to your mate, to a brother or sister in Christ. Don't underestimate it. God, God will use it in such powerful ways to help to cultivate in us a joy that is arising out of our relationships with God and with each other. The last thought that emerges out of this text to me, and I, and I think this is 
really important because I think a lot of us tend to believe that contentment is driven by personality. And we justify the sin of worry, of disgruntlement, of criticism. We justify all kinds of things based on personality. I think a lot of people think that contentment is a personality. People like me tend to think it's a personality disorder. Okay. People that are super content, I'm like, wow, I want to be like that. I want to enjoy that. I love seeing that in people. My wife is a picture of that. I've been married to her for 27 years, and you know me, right? People say, what's she really like? But what, what, what you see is her all the time. And she lives with me, which should amaze you. <laughs> That's a 27-year miracle, okay? That's how I look at that. But she is, she is that, and she cultivates that on her knees before the Lord. Part of it, yeah, she has a personality that leans that way, but she works at it. Content. It's not naturally occurring, folks, for me to embrace trouble and say, God, thank you. Thank you that my knee hurts. Thank you that I have a tooth that hurts. <laughs> thank you that I can't see. Right? It's like God's looking at us like, well, thank you. <laughs> I, I, how, does, how do you get it? That's the question, isn't it? We know Paul has it. Right? He says, I've learned a secret. And I'm like, tell me. <laughs> here's, here's the truth about contentment. It is learned behavior. We think it's circumstantial. We think it's financial. We think it's physical, health-related. And Paul says, no, no, no. Go back and read 2 Corinthians. No, no, no. It's learned behavior. It's a learned response. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Paul said, a thorn was given to me. My first response to the thorn, I had one in my hand a few weeks ago. First response when a thorn is in my hand is not to sit there and ponder it and take a picture of it. Okay? First thought in my mind is, how do I get that out as fast as possible? In fact, I don't even think about it. It just happens. That was Paul's response to trouble. And it's a fascinating insight into his life, isn't it? He says, a thorn was given to me. Oh, Paul, what did you do with that? Did you give God thanks? No, I asked him to get rid of it. Three times I prayed, take it away, take it away, take it away. And God says, hang on. You'll be stronger with this. What does he say? He says, most gladly, therefore, I will embrace the thorn. Think about this. I will own it so that the power of God may rest upon me. And what does Paul mean by that? He means when I'm resting behind the lighthouse, the storms of the hurricane, the waves of the hurricane, do not threaten people who stand behind a fortress. What is Paul saying? Notice what he says. I just want to read this in the verse because I think it's important. Second half of verse 11. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I face. I thought of the words of the song, It is well with my soul. Because in the middle of it is a phrase that Paul uses in Philippians 3. And you'll, you'll know it right away. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my circumstance, the man writing the song has what? Lost four 
children at sea going to the mission field. What do you say to that? Well, where was God? He was right there. He was right there. Here's what Horatio Spafford said in 1873. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have what? Taught me to say it is well. But folks, what's, what does that mean? It means you and I need to go get a degree, a degree in contentment. We need to go to school with God and stop complaining about our circumstances. Stop, stop complaining about the political winds. Stop complaining about the rise of certain races and certain religions in the world. See billows roll. But you have taught me to say, I have learned the secret of contentment. I can do all things. What is Paul saying? He's saying, I can stand in the context of 2 Corinthians 10 when trouble falls down on me and say, I am fine. I am fine. Not in the context of prison. Yes, it's true there. Why was it true there? It was true there because in all of the classes that God allowed him to go through, he was learning. He was a student. He was taking notes. Written on his heart by the power of the Spirit of God. And because God was there, what could he say? I'm fine. My circumstances stink. They're horrible. They're horrendous. Why did he list them? He listed them so that they would realize how bad it can really get. You have taught me to say a learned and here's what I think it is okay he had a learned God sufficiency it wasn't that Paul had kind of through spiritual calisthenics gotten strong enough it's not the idea here it is by pressing into God that he has found a strength he has found a fortress and every time he's overwhelmed, he follows the advice of David in the Psalms. What does David say? When I am overwhelmed, I run to the rock that is higher than I. And when he's on top of the rock, what happens? The storms don't seem to matter. The troubles of life, the distressing things don't seem to matter. What does it do? It turns down the volume of the evil one's voice in your life. It turns it down. He turns off the news channel and says, look at me. Stop looking at that stuff. Look at me. That's what God wants us to do. It's not a stoic sense of self-sufficiency that produces pride and, and independence. It's a sense of the joy that comes from knowing that God is your fortress. And yes, hurricanes are raging around my life, but God is firm. He is trustworthy. Run to Him. That's the idea of the text. Psalm 20, verse 7 says this. Some trust in chariots. Some in horses. I've heard people recently say, I'm really worried. That we're, we're, we're shrinking the size of our military. Politically speaking, I'm worried about that. But with a biblical lens on, I'm not worried about it. Some trust in chariots. Some in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? You are with me. You prepare a table for me. Where? In the presence of my enemies. 
You anoint my head with oil. You give me acceptance. You give me peace. You provide. What is the psalmist saying? God is enough. We sing the song. Do we believe it? If political winds change in a negative way, will you believe it? If sorrows like sea billows roll in your life, will you believe it? Will you grasp it? Will you allow God? Will I allow God to teach me so that I can say, I'm fine. If you want to give me dessert, God, I'm good with that too. But I can say, I'm fine. I'm fine. Jesus said to his disciples, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Why, Jesus? Because in this world you will have trouble. But take heart. Don't panic. Don't think that a politician is going to change the course of the country you live in in an election season. Believe that God will change the course of your country. Believe Psalm 115, verse 3, one of the shortest verses I could recommend to you to memorize, and it'll kind of be like a tag on to Philippians 4.13. Our God is in the heavens. He does what pleases Him. Well, that's a rock to flee to, isn't it? Trust in Him. Rest in Him. Corey Tenbaum said this. She said, I will never know a contented, undisturbed heart until I believe that a sovereign God is ordering everything for my ultimate good and His glory. I will not have a contented heart until I believe that a sovereign God who is exhaustively sovereign in every detail of your life is ordering everything in your life for your good. Now, that's why Paul could sit in prison and say, I'm good with that. It's why he could be left for dead and say, I'm good with that. And it's why when they threatened to chop off his head, which they finally did under Nero, he could say, I'm good with that too. Why? Well, because for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Now, folks, when we get there, what will happen? A sense of contentment. Now, does it mean we become politically paralyzed and inactive? I'm not saying that. Okay, please, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, when you talk about that more than you talk about the glory of God, you are misguided. When you believe that a politician can change your country, you have dethroned God. And I will vote, and I'll, if you want my opinion, I'll be glad to give you my opinion. I'm very strong in them, and I'll be glad to share them with most of you. But our hope is in the Lord. Paul was content in the Lord. And we have every reason. Listen to this. In the midst of knowing the man has lost his kids, Horatio Spafford pens these words. You say, where do you get hope like that? What do you mean he's taught you to say it is well? How? How can you say I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine? And repeat it in every verse of the song. How can you do that? Here's what he says. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Folks, would you not love to know that? Would you not love at the death of a loved one to be able to say, I'm fine. And I can face this circumstance, which is to say I can do all things. Everything that comes in Paul's life, he said, I can do it all. 
to the one who strengthens me. It's not self-sufficiency with pride. It's God's sufficiency with deep, joyful humility that becomes the bedrock of a joyful, glorious Christian life. We're going to take communion. Maybe you need to go to God this morning, as I have done. Because I want to tell you this. I, I panic about the stuff. Okay? I do. I'm, I'm not telling you I never worry about it. I think I can honestly say I never preach about it. I think I can say that. But there's a reason I don't. Because I don't want you to be man-centered. I don't want you to be circumstance-centered. I don't want you to be politically centered. I want you to be God-centered. We live in a great country. Don't trust it. Trust the Lord. Put God back on the throne in your life. And then you'll be able to say, you know what? With a smile, I'm fine. I don't like some of this stuff, but I'm fine. As we go to the Lord's table, the ground of our joy is that we can go to God. Because the sin that separated us from Him was borne by another. And the wrath that I deserved for my sin against God was borne by Christ. The judgment I deserved was borne by Christ. And Paul knew that his soon death would in fact not be a down. It would be an up. It would be a gain. Because of Christ. If you've never trusted Christ this morning, you will never know contentment without Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace. And when His blood cleanses you from your sin, you will be able to say, you know what, all I have is Christ, as we sung earlier. And I like to switch it around and say this, all I need is Christ. That's all I need. If you've never trusted Him, don't partake of the elements, partake of Jesus. Cry out to Him in simple faith and say, God, I believe today I am a sinner bound for separation from You for eternity in a place called hell forever. But I believe that Jesus died for my sin. And today, in the midst of my consternation, I want to trust Him. You will know peace. If you're a Christian, examine your heart. If there's sin you need to confess, deal with it. That's why we do this. That's why Jesus gave it. So that we would stare at the cost of our forgiveness and salvation and with weeping hearts cry out to God for the forgiveness that He has already provided in Jesus and experience a newfound contentment and, commi and commitment to Jesus Christ. Father, as we partake of the elements today, 